You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 49 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Connor Jonan and David Ian Howe. Tonight, it is just the boys, and we're going to be taking each segment to go over a time period to kind of discuss some of our favorite moments in history, talk about the archaeology and what makes them fascinating to us. And we're going to start off tonight with uh, David. What do you got for us? Well, Alexander the Great was born in 353 BC and he died in 323 BCE. Actually, it might be 350 BCE when he was born. Anyway, it doesn't matter. That time period. What do you guys want to know? Was he so great or was uh, he just uh, kind of oh, meh? Uh, well, he was Macedonian, right? Not great. <laughs> he was all right. He was kind of meh. And that's a good thing he said because in actual, his name was Megas Alexandros. So he actually was kind of meh. I'll see, I'll see what you did out. there. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Uh, yes, Carlton. He was born in Pella, Macedonia. So why is he mostly associated with the Greeks and not the Macedonians? His father Philip took over Greece. Because oh, here you go. So you got here's the deal. We got to set the scene, right? You guys heard of the old-fashioned Peloponnesian War? Which one? Well, there's a lot of them, but the Peloponnesian <laughs> War, the big one, the, the, big the first Pel- one, and the peninsula of the Peloponnese, which is like the big part where Athens and Sparta is. They've been going on this war of attrition for hundreds of years, right? right? And Philip is in Macedonia, King Philip, Philip Antisoter, I believe is his name. And he was like, hey, I'm over here herding goats. So so the story goes. And taming horses and whatnot. And I see all these Greeks just squabbling with each other for centuries. I'm just going to, you know, get this phalanx thing started. And, you know, the Spartans kind of had that on lockdown, but like, you know, let's lose that against them. And he was like, let's go. Masses this army, comes down, unites all of Greece. You get some uh, Macedonian takeover there. I mean, he becomes the king of Greece. But then my guy gets whacked. King Philip gets whacked, (laughs) possibly by a spy sent by Darius (laughs) or an assassin. And uh, yeah, so then Alexander at the young age of, I believe, like 21, maybe even like 19. I can't remember. He was, he was just, a, he was a kid, right? Becomes king of Macedonia. And his father was like, all I ever wanted to do was take out Persia. And he's like, well, Jesus Christ, that's a lot of shoes to fill. So <laughs> let's go. So he goes over because, you know, they, you know, the, the Persians and the Greeks have been at war for, you know, they just, they don't like each other. It's a classic rivalry, you know, like a high school football team, but it's what it is. But, you know, with just mass servitude and warfare and, you know, just not a good look. Quick question for you. King Philip only had one eye, right? Yes, he did. King Philip. When he, uh, when he lost that eye, did he shorten his name to Phil? Because Philip has two eyes and Phil only has one. <laughs> hey, that's good. That's some good family fun right there. I'm so sorry. I like it, dude. I like it. And in, in the movie, he's played by... Uh, What's his name? Val Kilmer. Yeah. Yeah. Is this like is this like um, sexy Val Kilmer or like not so good later in life? No, he was pretty they, haggard in this one though. They dyed his hair. You can barely tell it's him. Like he has black hair, has a beard, he has an eye patch. His uh his mother, yeah, he does a, <laughs> yeah, he's got aviators on for like most of the movie. <laughs> Playing Played volleyball. volleyball. Yeah. <laughs> Dangerous yeah. maverick. <laughs> He's married to Angelina Jolie, right? Before Brangelina. And, you know, Angelina Jolie, her name's Olympias. She believes Zeus came to her as a snake, as, you know, Zeus does, just promiscuous as all, impregnated her. And that's how uh, Alexander became born. And Philip was like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I got a question um, before you, I guess before you keep going. On. Yeah. I got, a, I got a question. So you said, you mentioned something about the the phalanx or the pharynx or the what can you explain that what that is that's like a that's like a yeah that's like the it's like a military formation right yeah it's the greek word for finger uh essentially it's a your soldiers that stand locked in line and they have a shield that guards it depends on the size like spartans have a big body size shield that weighed like i think upwards of like 100 some pounds or like 80 pounds i can't remember it's heavy 
But then, yeah, you hold these shields in unison all together and you form a wall. And in front of that wall, you have big, long, what's called cerises, which are big, long, like lances, essentially, that you put out in front of you. And the, the gist of a phalanx is that you have the whole army lined up together like that, but they stagger it. And that was what Alexander and Philip were great at. So imagine like a straight line, but every, I can't remember, I want to say it's like 25 men are staggered back about like a unit. So I, I can't describe it in any other way than like, imagine a line that falls down. Like if your stocks are plummeting, it looks like that, but even. And like, so that way, when the first one would come and like, make contact with the army, they would clash. So the other army would kind of try to fill in and flank them. But the rest of the Alexander's army would come up from behind, essentially enclosing their flank. And it just, it was pretty sick. It, it worked. Got all the way to India with it. But yeah. If you, if you want to know what a phalanx looks like, just 300, the movie, that's a phalanx. Yeah. But I think, and then uh, the Macedonian version, though, is heavily more on pikes, not spears which are well, different. So those pikes were like 30 feet long. Cerises, so you have like, yeah. yeah. So you had, it was an odd number across. I want to say it was like 13 men across and like a dozen or two dozen deep of pikes I, that I think, were kind yeah, of coming down. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it was like a big weighted, I, I guess pike or lance is the weighted, but it's not a spear really. Yeah. But just v- visualize it as that because it's like got the classic and it wasn't like a big barbed spear at the end. It was a spear that was like, you know, has the rounded um, back edge to it, which was sharpened. So when you stabbed it into somebody, you didn't have to just like get caught. You could just yank it right out. So you're like basically stabbing out of this phalanx. It's pretty sick. So it's it's 16 by 16 for a total of 256 men in each unit. Okay. That yeah. checks out. It's been a minute. I took this class in uh, college. It was awesome. So how did he, because I mean, like during this time, Greece was still considered a backwater area. And the Mediterranean. Macedonia. Yeah, Macedonia and Greece. Like, this is before... Was this before or after the Thermopylae? This is before, right? This is way after Thermopylae. Yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah. Because remember, Sparta and Athens have now, like, had their heyday as polities and, like, been huge city-states. And then they just, like, kind of fall. Not fall, but, like, they fall out of order and, like, their huge power of, like, that classical age of Greece. And then, like, it ends up being taken over by the Macedonians. Yeah, so like, Thermopylae was in 480 BC. Okay, so yeah. 100 years or so before it. Yeah. Yeah. But still like Greece is, you know, Persia is still like the dominant superpower. Yeah. Yeah. Can I can I go on like a minor tangent? I got like on a crazy like oh, random Yeah. Yeah, I was like randomly one night I decided I wanted to figure out where the battle of like Thermopylae occurred geographically. And Basically, the location that it's at is so geologically active with stuff that it's like not easy to rediscover where all this stuff actually happens. So they have like a general idea of where this stuff occurred, but there's like yeah. mudslides and all this crazy stuff that like comes down that like has buried these sites. So it's like we we have like written records from it, and that's the only like really good way that we know this actually happened, which I thought was like fascinating because I thought it would just be like, oh, this should be easy to find the way they describe it in like 300 and all that stuff. Yeah. I think there's also like Persian records of it too. And they're like, these guys were tough. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's what it is. Like it was pretty, they were a screwed in bunch, you know, like the Greeks had their stuff together. Yeah. That's, that's sick. I didn't know like they had all that craziness going on. And it, for anyone who doesn't know, like Thermopylae was this tiny little narrow corridor of a pass that the Spartans like lodged themselves into and then created this wall of death and held off like, I believe like a couple hundred thousand Persian soldiers. Yeah, it was like three days, and it wasn't till like local farmers or something led the Persians to a pass that outflanked the Spartans, and then mm-hmm. so, but the Spartans stayed, and because there was also like two thousand Greek city-state allies present, so it wasn't just the three hundred Spartans, but there was like two thousand allies on top of that. The allies went back to go warn everybody else, and yeah, back to Alexander yeah. the Great Our though. Canadians and uh, yeah. So um, I got a lot of a lot of ways to go in eight minutes here, but he takes his whole army, right? And they go, and he's got his, his best bro, Hephaestion, which is also his lover. My guy swung both ways, total badass, just did whatever he wanted to do. And he was like, you which know Which was what? common back then, because you totally spent- Totally common, yeah. yeah. It's like the norm, I think, but like, don't let that stop you. Conquered the whole world. Yeah, he keeps going, and then he goes to this place called Gordium, where they have the Gordian Knot, if you've ever heard of that. 
and it's like this this huge knot and it's like whoever unties this knot will be the king of asia and alexander just looks at it and then just chops it in half with his sword and he's like all right <laughs> and they're like okay cool king of king of asia i guess that works then he goes to troy takes achilles shield out of the tomb because he loved achilles he would sleep with the iliad under his pillow and a knife because you know just for good practice and uh he goes down there takes uh, achilles shield use that for most of his battles i believe is what the story says uh then he goes to egypt and uh or he goes to tyre which is outside israel or Judea at the time. The Greeks did not like the Jews. They put up a, a huge fight there. And um, <laughs> that turns into the whole thing. Because one of Alexander's successors is the general that was like ruling Judea, that area. And <laughs> Carlton's laughing at me. I mean, it's, it's the story of Hanukkah, bro. I just, I, just I just wasn't like... <laughs> you just weren't ready just like, Yeah, the Greeks just didn't like the Jews. And I was just like... Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just, it's what it is. Because like they, they made the, like Hanukkah. Antigonus Gennatus is the... Um, or Antiochus. Antiochus was his one of his diadochi that took over after him. And that's the guy in Hanukkah that the Maccabee, or like they were the Maccabee, whatever, like, you know, when the Hanukkah candles, like, or the, what do you call it, the menorah didn't burn out. Those were the Greeks that were occupying Judea that were like, you know, screw you guys. <laughs> anyway, so he goes down to Egypt and they're like, yo, real sick of this Darius guy. He's a character. Don't like him. He thinks he's king of Egypt. Uh, established himself as Pharaoh. You know, you're cool. You're cool, Alexander. And he was like, cool. I'm now Pharaoh. Uh, got, <laughs> got all the support of Egypt. And Egypt, of course, is the breadbasket of the Mediterranean. So now he has his whole army fed. So then he goes over to this place, Galgamela. Huge battle with Darius, right? And they have this gigantic battle and Alexander just crushing victory. And then Darius, he goes to kill him, but he flees into the hills. And Alexander has his men chase him down and kill him. And then he is then welcomed into Babylon as a conqueror. I believe like the age of like 20 something, 22, 23, wild stuff. So he's now the king of Babylon and owns a lot of Persia. And then they just press on and press on all the way to India. So like the, the, the Ganges river, which is like the border between India and Iran. What he did though, which is interesting about Alexander is he was really into I forget what the policy was called. I can't remember off the top of my head. But essentially, it was an anthropological policy where he wanted all of his soldiers to intermarry with Persians. So he wanted to make one big Greek population, like Persian and Greek, unite the world in a way. Mm -hmm. But all of his soldiers who have been like fighting for a couple of years now are like, hey, we want to go back to Greece. Like we want to see our wives. And I think she's had like three kids by now with other men. But like, you know, whatever. I want to go home. And uh that was irrelevant. <laughs> uh, that was a that was a Wall Street Vets joke. But anyway, <laughs> my I gotta ask my wife's boyfriend if it's cool if I invest in the stock. Is what I was getting at. Um, anyway, they're like, we don't really want to do this, and he's like, no, no, you're gonna you're gonna marry some of these Persian women. Uh, you're gonna unite the empire, and they're all gonna speak Greek and learn, you know, the Greek Socratic way. And they were like, all right, that's fine but we're not going to India. And Alexander's like, okay, well, here's the thing though. We're going to India. And, <laughs> and then they go to India and they fight elephants, dude. And like in the movie, he's like, we got, it's the hound. The guy who plays the hound. I forget his yeah. name. Yeah. Oh, uh, he's that. like, we got to fight these elephant creatures. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's the hound. And like, they've seen elephants before. Like they went to Babylon, like obviously they had zoos and stuff there. So they were like, oh, but I guess they never really saw one like, you know, fight in action. Yeah, like a and, war like, elephant where they're all decked out and made to Yeah, be like angry. the return of the king, dude. Yeah. And yeah. like, but just, you know, a lot smaller because those were Mumak. And then we, we got, all right, getting in the weeds here. But um, <laughs> he fights these people on the Ganges and there's just like butchery of a battle, right? Apparently, I forget one of the battles before that, but he like climbs, I think it was actually this battle, the movie and and, and the I can't remember the actual story, kind of mess, change it a bit. But he climbs this ladder, like on this castle, and he's just like cleaving men, like at the top. Cause he would, he was, he's a, he's a classically trained classical leader, right? He was at the front lines. And he goes up there and he takes Achilles' shield and he's just like hacking. And they're like, this guy is deranged. And then like he needs to chill out. And he like gets wounded, he gets stabbed and falls, and they carry him out on Achilles' shield. It's pretty poetic. Probably didn't happen like that. But anyway, there's this big battle with elephants, just butchery, and they like fall back. But the dude, after that, wanted to keep pressing on and then go to China. 
And because heard, they heard about China, they're like, this place sounds rad. I really want to take it over. And as all his generals, like all of them were like, bro, <laughs> settle down. We are not going to China. Like, just sounds crazy. We've got to cross the whole Gobi Desert. No, we're going home. And they're like, all right, fine, we'll go home. And he goes back to, to Babylon. And then he's like, got all these dreams of like, I want to go take over uh, Europe. And at this point, the Latins are getting like stronger and like uniting as like tribal people into what would become Rome around this time, like forming like the early Republic of Rome. And, they and Alexander like, doesn't have kids at this point. Like he's still, and he's only like, and he's still in his early twenties. Like yeah. he was, yeah. And he, uh, yeah, he's married to Roxana, who was a Persian like from, and they got, it was a political marriage, but he like, obviously didn't really, I think he swung more one way. And he did not want a kid with her or it just didn't happen or she wasn't able to have. I can't remember. Yeah, it never produced an heir. And this was the problem because then he dies and they're not sure if it's from either he was poisoned or if he was just drank himself to death because my guy loves some wine or if he had some kind of like malaria type thing. He just had some crazy fever, but he dies and he leaves no successor. And apparently all he said on his deathbed was to the strongest. So, of course, being masculine very toxic men that are the heads of armies were like, well, I'm the strongest bro. And they all like fight to become the leader and it splits up. And then the whole empire because Egypt does its own thing. Uh, And then Ptolemy becomes Pharaoh of Egypt. And that's the Ptolemaic dynasty, which ends with Cleopatra. Antiochus takes um, like Judea, that whole area. And then another guy takes all of Greece and another guy that the satrapy of uh, like the rest of Persia and Bactria. And yeah. which is like where the Scythians lived and stuff. And then it just like dissolves. They all fight each other for centuries. And the Romans are like, just like, you know, history repeats itself. All the Greeks fighting each other. And Philip was like, guys, you got to unite. The Greeks or the Romans were like, uh, you can unite. Uh, but either way, we're going to take you over. Uh, it's just that's how it's going to go. And then they have the Battle of Sinocephale, which is the dog's head. And then another huge battle, the that Pydna, I believe. And they just take over all of like, and the, you know, the Romans get all the way to basically Arabia and they're like, this is ours now. This is mine. Yeah. And part of the you know reason the Romans had such an easy time is that during Alexander's march, he was always asking for men, always not only having his soldiers, you know, have kids with, with people, but like trying to spread out Macedons throughout his empire. So by the time he, he's gone, all the satraps take their own part of the spoils. Like Macedonia is just depleted of manpower and resources. Yeah. So when the Romans show up, they're just like, it, I think there's like three wars, but the last one, the Romans finally were like out of the game. Yeah, You're out of the game. And that whole time we got to end here, but like that whole time, the, like imagine like game of Thrones, all the pol- like pol- politics, the politics that go on, you know, back <laughs> at the Senate and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. like in Greece and Sparta, they're all like, why is this dude in India? Like he's in <laughs> India cleaving people in half on a castle wall, drunk out of his mind. Like, let's just kick him out and become Greece again. And there was all that going on. And like, I believe he had really loyal men that stayed there and like kept it, you know, going together. Right. Only Sparta Uh, revolted once and that was put down. And then uh, Alexander Alexander pardoned him. And that was the whole thing with uh, Diogenes and stuff like that. And on that note, with the death of Alexander the Great at the ripe old age of 32, uh, we'll be right back with episode 49. We're back with episode 49 of a Live Rooms podcast. I just talked for an exorbitant amount of time about Alexander the Great. Now it is who Carlton or Connor's turn to talk about something. It's Connor's turn. All right. Connor is going to grace us with the, the knowledge of what is Genghis Khan. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to talk about this stuff. It kind of builds off of what David was talking about with Alexander the Great, who's like this, you know, crazy dude who wanted to like conquer the freaking world and, but was like adaptable and like changed his tactics based on what, whatever he's in, doing and wherever he is. Yeah. So everyone knows Genghis Khan is like this terrible, awful, like marauding, pillaging, raping kind of dude. And, that's just what it is. I mean, he he did that. There's like, there's no denying that that those things happened. That's the truth of the matter. The man's unnoticed. Yeah, like he just we should <laughs> cancel him. Yeah, he he would be canceled almost immediately. Yeah, so he's born in like the 1100s AD or whatever thing that people use today in Mongolia. Uh, he's born Temujin, 
and he was the first great Khan or the emperor of nomadic folks in Mongolia. And he really got this power by spending a bunch of time basically fighting a bunch of like small scale wars, inter nomadic tribe wars, and then consolidated all these tribes into this kind of superpower that it became. Yeah, so all in Northeast Asia. He went ham. He conquered as far west in Europe as Poland and Levant in the Middle East. How far east did he go? To He didn't make it to Japan. He did China. He got China. He didn't go all of them. Yeah, he tried to get into like southern China. I think he got into the, the northern part. Was like, yeah. Nah. Yeah, he got into the decent amount into China and then tried to evade Japan. And then that was the first appearance of Godzilla. When he came out of, uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was, I'm pretty sure that was Kublai though, right? That eventually tried to go into Japan and got the divine Kublai wind. Kublai was the one who yeah. tried to sail to Japan, and that's yeah. when the the kamikaze happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. kamikaze so he, means divine wind. Yeah, interesting. It's taken a, a taken a different thing since World War II. You know, shout out Smithtown Wada. Um, it does have a different yeah, con- very, connotation. Very connotation. different context. Yeah, but one of the things. Yeah, so I was reading this book Comic called Gang- are "Canceled." It's canceled, straight canceled. I was reading a book called "Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World" by Jack Weatherford, and he kind of brings up these interesting parts and some some of the brilliant parts of Genghis Khan, ignoring the raping, pillaging, you know, general bad, you know, shooting people's heads, you know, prisoners' heads back into their their. <laughs> their place that they came from, you know, things like that. So he, he does this, his adaptability comes in like, and it really like shows in every aspect of uh, what he does. So he, when he would go places and conquer them, he started um, taking over some of their technology and devised and used some of their weapons that they had contact with and kind of creates this global arsenal that it can conquer anything at, at any point and has this wide range of variability ultimately that can help him attack and conquer in any sort of place. That's how you don't make it to Poland by doing the same sort of like horse raiding things. You have to, it's difficult. It's different things, different cultures and different military tactics that, that take to ultimately conquer that far. So yeah, he did that with. Didn't he like when he got through the Middle East, he would put like Islamic generals like at the front of his army. He's like, you could either die or you can be a general in my army and then use like all your siege equipment and your tactics just for me. And like, is, is that why he was like so good? Yeah. And part, yeah, he did that. And then he, I think when he conquered these places, he would also, yeah, he didn't change existing power structures. He basically was like, Hey, just work for me. You know, he didn't fundamentally change. He didn't, you know, put in his own rulers everywhere, but it was like, Hey, you can t- keep doing exactly what you're doing. You just have to pay me tribute essentially. Yeah. Refused <laughs> to pay tribute. yeah and and so he's quoting sonny (laughs) yeah and uh one of the things he does that i think is also pretty interesting is that when he when he conquers these places he like just kind of takes away all these like aristocratic titles and things and kind of consolidates them into in his government so they're not like he just abolishes all sorts of existing power structures and creates his own from like the top down so like you'd go in these places and be like hmm I don't really like what you guys are doing. And this, you know, he, he was always trying to fight unrest within his army and all these like policies and things are, are basically like a, a mechanism to keep his empire together. So yeah, he used abolished different aristocratic titles and he also did it politically. Like he had this kind of working set of laws, like every, everywhere he would go, he would be quick to adapt new laws in order to, ultimately keep his empire together so you know if something wasn't working and causing unrest he was quick to change that you know it's like it's like the senate or like uh the house of representatives and how they should work it should be an adaptable thing that changes through time but you know mitch mcconnell right it's just (laughs) it's just what it is (laughs) the old uh yertle the turtle yeah yeah um and kind of an example of these political things that he did when he initially, you know, united these nomadic tribes together, he immediately outlawed slavery, which was super common and was a cause for disputes that would occur between different tribes because people would steal folks. 
yeah. yeah, kidnap other folks and enslave them. And then those people get retribution and things like that. Uh, so he outlawed slavery and he also, yeah, he also outlawed kidnapping because they just, they were ultimate t- uh, tools to like mess with the society and he was just not having part of it. He also got like kidnapped like multiple times and had like a really bad time doing that. As a kid? Yeah, yeah. As a kid, he got kidnapped and was treated pretty poorly and he was not wanting to have any part of that. You guys have any questions? I, I, I guess from my understanding, like his tactic, you've seen like Game of Thrones where like Danny arrives in the reach with the Dothraki and like you hear this like thunderous like sound and then like, oh God. And like all these like just horseback are like soldiers just come out of nowhere, like screaming. And like I imagine that's what like a Connet horde would be, because it's just like this nomadic step people just come out of nowhere and then you like have nothing you can do because they're just fast. They have like, you know, they're archers that are expert archers, and they're just really, really good swordsmen on top of that that just shoot. And then the problem is when you try to shoot back at them, they can just run away. So it's just like this unstoppable, like cancer that just comes out of nowhere. It's my understanding, but yeah. 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 That that messed up a lot of people back then because they could, they're used to just like when archers run, they're not shooting anymore, but those horse archers, like, you know, Gino was talking about with the Scythians. It was like the same deal that they could keep attacking no matter where they were on the battlefield. And also my least favorite enemy on Rome Total War because my armies are never set up to deal with horse archers and it just drives me up the wall chasing around that entire god map. Well and then, and then, and then he would build off of this uh he would he would like do these awful things like th- have these certain battles where he would like show like specific dominance and then these these stories get spread out to other cities and they just like immediately like capitulate because they were just like you were saying they were mm-hmm. so scared of like whatever he was going to do kind of was a messed up dude <laughs> just what it is i'm trying to find the quote i remember this from wrath of the cons let me read it but he sent this to the i believe the satrap of iraq or baghdad i think and he like sent a like letter from an emissary saying like yo you guys need to surrender and the baghdad was like no <laughs> and then he sends this letter it's big and long but the actual quote from the end of it is i am the scourge of god if he wait, hang on. I just got a pop up. What is this? Nineteen ninety eight. I am the scourge of God. If you had not committed great sins, God would not have sent a punishment like me upon you. And then the guy was like, "All right." <laughs> I don't remember if he. Uh, they they surrendered there, or he like took Baghdad. I remember there was like a bloodbath at some point, but yeah, he would just like send letters and like was the kind of guy with like would send like messengers heads back just being like, Nope, this is not how this is going to go. And like, it's just terrifying to think about. Yeah. He would uh, play um, upon like existing, like power structures and stuff. So like he would go in and have like uh, spies go into cities mm-hmm. and figure out what, like who's pissed, who's pissed off at who and what, you know, how we can ultimately play these people against each other. So be like, Hey, come fight for me. I'll give you your city back. We can k- take out that guy. And it'll be good. And, you know, he sometimes, even on some occasions, he didn't, like, actually uh, stick true to that and ultimately killed the guy that he, like, played against the other guy. But he's he just, he was, he was a wild child, man. He was a wild child. <laughs> he was a wild child. My, uh, my uncle did his 23 and me, my mom's brother. And, like, obviously it said we were very much a percent of one culture, I won't say. And then um, he was, like, 98% that. And then uh, he had, like, 1%, like, I want to say, like, uh, Northern European or something. And then 1% Mongol. And I was like, what? (laughs) And, like, (laughs) I don't know if that means, like, Genghis Khan's my great, great, great whatever. Or maybe just one of his foot soldiers. But, like, I like to think so. Not for that person, but, like, just in general. I'm like, whoa. Isn't, I have a claim to the throne. Isn't there like a whole thing that like one out of five people is related to Genghis Kong or something like that? It's, I think it's one out of like 12 or something crazy, but uh, no, that wouldn't be right. Let me look I don't, how is that even possible? <sighs> uh, I guess because there were only like a, maybe like a billion people on the planet at that point. And then if yeah, they but this all, was like in the like 1100s, like this wasn't like early. 
Yeah, but he also like took a bunch of wives. Like if you look at his like Wikipedia page, there's like at least 15 wives. So one in 200 men. Okay, I'll buy that. One in 200? That's crazy. Yeah, I'd buy that. That's crazy. But I mean, yeah, if you think about how densely populated Asia is. Yeah. The only thing additional I have to add that I thought was pretty cool uh, upon reading this book is that he was also very tolerant of other people's, other folks' religions. And that's another one of his kind of mechanisms for keeping peace within his empire. Yeah, he's one of, known to be one of the first rulers to be tolerant of most religion within his empires. And these policies did not initially include Judaism and Confucianism, but they were eventually added to the kind of this list of tolerated religions later on. He still practiced his own religion, but did not make it mandatory for other folks uh, to follow in his kind of footsteps. That would make sense that like those smaller religions didn't really get pushed in the beginning because like at that time, everyone's probably Buddhist. And then his like, well, I think he had the sky god. It was like a horse god or something like that. And then um, Islam was like the dominant religion of his side of the world. So, or like, you know, the part that he conquered. So like small little things like Judaism and Catholics, he was probably just like, what? <laughs> like, get out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And those were, yeah, those were related, uh, added by his son, Ogadai. And yeah, so they, he like, he started taxation, not taxing religious leaders and the property and things like that. So he did have some kind of interesting like political policies, even though he was gallivanting, pillaging and being a general terrible person. Yeah. According to the, what was it, the Wrath of the Cons podcast, he would, like, take these, like, giant, like, I essentially, like, big pallets that were, like, 20 feet by 20 feet, and then, like, lay people down on them, tied up, and then put another one on top of them, essentially making a sandwich, and then they would eat on top of, like, just have dinner on top of that, like, with tables and chairs and stuff, and I guess just sitting on it, really, and then, like, that was, like, their punishment, and, like, the dude was just, like... He had fun with it, you know, like he, he got creative, which is just awful. But like, well, and I, I think he like lined people up that were like anyone shorter than like the spoke of the wagon wheel. He would like behead them or something crazy. It's just like, why? <laughs> just because you can or like, do you want people to be shorter? I think maybe that was what it was. But like he just would pick random and it's just like they were just terrifying people. I also read somewhere that he made a. Yeah, he made like a human, a human, essentially a human water bridge, a human bridge. So they would just put human bodies and then like put his like siege engines on top of it just to like ford rivers and crap. Just because he's, yeah, he he had fun with it. You weren't joking. Yeah, man. I mean, what's the phrase? Like idleness is creativity. I don't remember. Whatever. Not going (laughs) to. Idle hands are the devil's playground. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's probably more accurate. Anyway, that took a dark turn. But yeah, the guy, the kid had some issues, like just, you know, bottom, <laughs> bottom up, you know. But like, what can we do? Yeah, he heavily utilized that Silk Road, though. That was all, you know, all him creating that, really hammering that relationship and bringing the East to the West forcefully. Yeah. But- it was you know. Kublai was the one that met Marco Polo. Yeah, so, I really am disappointed that season three of Marco Polo is not coming out. That like, show I was actually, pretty good. I, I liked, liked it. it. Yeah, it was fun. I enjoyed it. A lot of just unnecessary nudity just in every scene. Oh, 100%. Like, you know, like, yeah. That one dude was getting pegged, and it was just, like just out of nowhere. <laughs> I was just <laughs> so like, whoa. need to put that in here. <laughs> You're just so unexpected. I was just like, all right, this is the kind of show we're watching. Yeah, it's just... Whatever they put it right up there, but you know we're gonna go. Cool. We're gonna go ahead and put a peg in this segment, and so we'll come back with uh, <laughs> segment three of episode forty nine. We'll be right back. Welcome back to episode forty nine of a Life in Ruins podcast. Uh, Connor just enlightened us with the story of Genghis Khan, also known as Temujin, also known as really needed some nap time. <laughs> the kid had some issues, so here's the deal, Carlton. Yo. When, Con- <laughs> when Connor and I were in Albuquerque with you, the old ABQ, you know, ABQ. at the uh, the SAAs, the Society of American Archaeology, for those uninitiated, you know, where we meet to talk about giants and aliens and whatnot, we went to the the nuclear museum, like the mm-hmm. Museum of Atomic Theory, or you know, 
museum of nuclear power, whatever it was, it was radioactive. We went there and in the back of the museum, Connor, what were there? There were these things with wings. Wings. Not buffalo wings. <laughs> not not the wings you get on a plane when you're a kid screaming because you're anxious and you're going to throw up and you really want your Game Boy, but your mom took it from you because you were playing Men in Black too much on the plane on the way to Orlando and screaming <laughs> that you couldn't win the level anyway. That's a personal story. Planes that fly. And Carlton has an extreme knowledge about planes. And Carlton, let me just ask you, what is your favorite plane? And I want you to be exactly you about this. Oh, you know what? It's it's going to have to be the P-51D Mustang, like 100% hands down. Yeah, that was a amazing aircraft in World War II that was really showcased the collaboration between the United States and Great Britain made like a super plane extra excellent aircraft so in the episode that we recorded with uh, maynard um, hip-hop science we talked about those little pamphlets you used to get like the nat geo ones where you had the binder it had all the animals and you could classify them by you know their uh class zoo books well, yeah zoo books well growing up i didn't have zoo books my brother had the zoo books they made these, it was the similar thing, but for aircraft of the world. And last time I went home, I still have all 12 binders and like a couple thousand pages of it. And that ran up until like the early 2000s. Like that's what I got in the mail were the little, basically the zoo book versions of airplanes, not just World War II. It started from the age of flight all the way to spacecraft. And like, I loved those binders. It sounds so. like you did. Yeah, I had a lot. My mom thought it was weird because like, you know, growing up, everyone liked trucks and stuff. But no, I had planes like I had the little model planes. I had like an aircraft carrier where I could launch them off of. Yeah, super obsessed with planes. That's pretty rad, dude. And you guys saw a bit of that when we were in Albuquerque and we went to that museum <laughs> and I was sitting there talking with the docent about the different kinds of aircraft and pointing out differences in the B-52 they had present based on its uh, its tail. Yep. It's extensive. <laughs> this is the second time we've been exposed to it. Um, so like the first time, I think he was uh, he was holding back. We were at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. Exactly. And he he like hinted at it. <laughs> the carbon oh, museum. yeah. <laughs> the carbon museum. I, I contained it. I was more, yeah, I was more interested in puns, making puns about things and putting them on Snapchat, annoying Chris and Connor than I was about like just nerding out. But there was a bit of that. I nerded out a, a little bit. But I didn't know Connor that well at that time. So I was just kind of like yeah. keeping it contained. But so tonight they asked me to talk about it. And we're talking about different periods in time. And I wanted to do, and this is something that actually kind of relates to archaeology, was I wanted to talk about the uh, European bomber campaign conducted by the Allies and the Germans from uh, 1940 to 1945. Color me intrigued. Yeah. So, you know. Taking, taking things with a grain of salt, I'm going to use two terms tonight. You know, there's going to be terror bombing. There's going to be strategic bombing. Uh, the difference between the two is there's not really any difference, but the Allies had strategic bombing and the Nazis had terror bombing, but they did the same thing. <laughs> words are words. You know, like setting the scene before the U.S. got involved on June 7th, 1941 in Deitch, which we're living infamy. You know, Britain was out there hanging, hanging by a thread, right? France had just been knocked out in two weeks by the Germans through their blitzkrieg tactics. Dunkirk had been evacuated and uh, Winston Churchill just did his famous speech. We'll fight them on the beaches. You know, this, we will never surrender. Like one of my all time favorite speeches, I have it on my iPod and I have a list of inspirational ones. Uh, Ronald Reagan's on there too, but not for his politics. He said some pretty good stuff to Mr. Gorbachev. I gave, uh, you go. Yeah. But like, you know, Germany and, and the UK were so close that you really didn't need long range bombers. So, like, the Germans were really using the Ju-88 or the Heinkel, which were okay. And at first, they were only targeting, like, military targets. That was kind of the deal. You know, they didn't bomb neighborhoods. And so that's when the blitz started, right? So the Germans were preparing for Operation Sea Lion, which was their operation to invade England. Like, that's what they were gearing up for. They were setting up the Atlantic Wall. They knew that they couldn't have the fleet to match Great Britain. So, like, we have the Luftwaffe. We're going to knock out Great Britain by the air, soften them up, so then we can get our guys across as quick as possible from the Pas de Calais, which is the shortest point between Britain and France. But one night, uh, Ju-88 got lost because the Germans, early on, you only bombed at nighttime because they were slow. 
if you bombed at day, anti-aircraft could see you. The Brits had developed early radar, which was critical. Like that's chef's kiss because they were able to use radar to move the RAF fighters around. They were primarily using the Hurricane at this point, which had like six 303 machine guns on it. 303 is pretty small. And they had like a couple Supermarine Spitfires, which were pretty fast, but like primarily they're using Hurricanes. So fun fact, the, the top rated squadron with the most confirmed kills was a Polish unit in the RAF. These were Polish fighter pilots who had been fighting since 1939 and had fled. The UK had a lot of Polish units who basically carried on the fight after Poland capitulated, which they're unsung heroes of the war. They did an immaculate work. And unfortunately, after the war, the UK kicked all the Polish army out, like knowing that they were probably going to be killed in occupied communist occupied Poland. And that's what happened. Like a lot of those guys, like the UK said, you know, thank you for your service. We don't want you here and kicked them out. And a lot of them were killed back in Poland by, by the communist regime, but getting back to the bomber talk. So uh, the Germans are attacking at night because it's safer for bomber pilots, but you're less accurate. And a Ju-88 crew got lost and actually bombed downtown London. That broke the no, no rule. It was an accident, but then the RAF retaliated and then bombed uh, urban districts in uh, Berlin. And this was actually a, a good thing, not for the loss of life, but this pissed off Hitler so much that instead of targeting military targets, like the British were on the brink, like their airfields were getting bombed. They were losing guys. They were knocking out radar stations. Like they were hitting military targets. But then Hitler being all pissed with that floppy hair haircut of his and the mustache was like, now we're just going to bomb residences. And like Goering was like, Hitler, bro, mein Fuhrer, my dude, let's not do that. How about we keep doing the bombing military targets thing because we have them on the cusp, didn't it? And uh, switch switch targets. And, and it allowed not only like reinvigorated British attitudes in the war, like now they, the British people were getting really upset, but also it gave the RAF time to recuperate, which was huge. So the blitz ends. This is where things really go cattywampus for the Germans. So like Hitler was like, oh, Operation Sea Lion failed. You know what? We'll just leave the Brits there. But these Russians, let's just go start an entirely new war on the Eastern Front because Looking that will go well. So it's because of the failure of Operation Sea Line that the Germans, which they already had plans to attack the East, but they just before knocking out Britain, they want to knock out Britain first, secure their Western flank and then go take out the East. They left Britain alone. So then the Japanese, they attack Pearl Harbor, which is a whole different conversation. But early on, like the biggest effect that the U.S. had was the bombing campaigns in Germany. And for that, we actually had like strategic long range four engine bombers. So the B-29, uh, not B-29, that was later. That's the super fortress that's not developed until like 1944, 1945. But the B-17 flying fortress, B-24 liberator, uh, the B-25 Mitchell is like a medium bomber. But so, but the most iconic long range bombers of World War II, you think of B-17, B-24 and the, and the uh, England, the UK had the Lancaster which is another heavy bomber. And these things could hold, uh, you know, a couple hundred pounds up to like 4,000 pounds of bombs. I'm probably a little off. That's the high end, but that's not a lot, right? Like today, modern day, like F-16s, F-20, uh, F-25s, F-24s, like they can hold 2,000 pound bombs. And those are jet and those are fighter class, right? So, and if you looked at like a modern day jet fighter compared like next to like a B-17, they're damn near the same size. So like there's differences, and, and capabilities between now and then. The Americans opted for, and this is under Curtis LeMay, uh, who ends up becoming the Air Force. But this is uh, before the Air Force, you had the U.S. Army Air Corps. Each branch of the military in the United States had its own Air Force. The Navy had theirs. The Marines had uh, theirs. But actually, the Air Force wasn't, I don't think it came about to like 1950s. But until then, it was the U.S. Army Air Corps. They did daylight raids, which were bad. I think at the early onset of the strategic bombing campaigns against Germany, only 10% of crews made it back. Like, cause you had to either make 25 or 30 missions and then you could go home and only 10% of guys are making that. So you're talking about air crews upwards of like nine to 10 and on very expensive aircraft and talking also like in bomber pilots and bomber crews were some of the most like intensely trained in terms of longevity. So like losing a bomber was not, it was cost, it was, it was costly in a number of ways. Right. But the Americans were like, we're going to bomb during the day because we're more accurate. And that's just how it was. The British were like, we're going to bomb at night because we can 
you know, not die, but they were less accurate. But what I was able to do is you like the Germans had no time to sleep. And this went on for, you know, four years. But one of the coolest things that came out of it, which I actually talk about in my archaeology class, which is why I want to bring it up, is called the bullet hole misconception. So like early on, they were like, how do we increase like survivability rates of our bomber crews? So what they did is they started analyzing all the bombers that came back. And then they saw bullet holes in places and they were like, okay, we need to put more armor here because they couldn't just up armor the entire aircraft because then you couldn't drop bombs, right? Because it has to still be able to fly. So particularly they noticed on, and mind you, aircraft that came back, um, there was a large concentration of bullet holes on the tips of the wings, at the base of the wings where it meets the fuselage, the tail, and then also the midsection. And so early on, they're like, oh, if we armor these up, we will we'll have increased survivability. So they tried that and didn't work. However... There was an individual by the name of, what was his name? Abraham Wald, who was a Hungarian Jewish statistician who fled Nazi-occupied Nazi Austria and worked with other academics in the West. And he noticed real quick, he's like, but wait, these are only the planes that came back. Because he looked at this map and noticed that there was like three distinct places where all the planes that came back had no bullet holes. It was the middle section of the wings and the midsection of the tail. And he said, the planes that are coming back made it because those places are secure. You need to put armor on the places where the planes coming back aren't showing any bullet holes. And he was right. And so just by looking at that, he was able to increase, they armored those areas and the survivability rate from for bomber crew went from like 10% in 1942 up to like 60% in um, 1945. Holy crap. That's a big jump. Um, and the reason why I bring it up in archaeology is because like we talk about, yeah, huge. And the reason why I talk about archaeology is I talk about site bias and taphonomic bias that archaeologists tend to look in places where they know there's going to be sites and not look at places. So like I bring it up with like large game kills. It's easy to find archaeological sites with like mammoths or Pleistocene because we know it's easier to find Pleistocene kills by the giant mammoth bones. And it is like a couple flakes that used that are like now... 30 feet underground that used to be a rock shelter. So I actually incorporate my dorky World War II knowledge into class. <laughs> they don't get this whole like 20 minute spiel on like the history of strategic bombing. They only get a, a brief moment of it. What did uh, the Tuskegee Airmen use? What kind of planes are those? So, oh, that is an excellent question, David. So actually early on, they used outdated P-40 aircraft. If you ever saw the movie um, Pearl Harbor, Josh Hartnett, yeah. Yeah, those fighters that they use, those are U.S. Army Air Corps. Those are really slow and outdated. But so early on, they used P-40s. And then they got P-51C aircraft. And the difference between the P-51C and the P-51D, this is really important, is the P-51C model didn't have the bubble, the teardrop canopy. So it wasn't like a straight fuselage and then you had the cockpit. It was built in. And it was also using an engine that was produced by the United States. And the P-51 was at first thought to be a complete failure until someone, I forget who it was, they decided to put a supermarine Spitfire, so a British aircraft engine, the Merlin engine. They put the Merlin engine in a P-51 just to see what would happen. And wham, that it was like the fastest propeller fighter of the war. It had the longest range, like the P-50. And then the Tuskegee Airmen got it, painted them the red, the red in the back, really distinguishing red. They got, that's how they got the nickname, the moniker, the red tails. They had a really high kill count themselves, like one of the best in the war. And what was cool about the P-51, it was so aerodynamic and had such an amazing engine, you know, that confluence of British engineering and American engineering, that an, they had an increased range as well. So they could actually escort bombers further into Germany, whereas like the P-47s, P-38s could get pretty far too. But like Hurricanes, Spitfires, P-40s, early war aircraft, they could only escort the bombers so far into Germany before they had to turn back, even with fuel tanks. And the German Luftwaffe would just like wait because bombers without escorts, you know, that's just easy pickings. But the P-51 can almost take them. And the P-51s went up, P-51s have several kills against ME-262s, which are the first, like, jet engine aircraft of the war the Germans invented. And the P-51s, dude, they had, like, six 50-caliber machine guns in there. Like, American uh, fighter aircraft using the 50-cal was just chef's kiss. Because those things could tear up other things. But, like... You know, BF 109s, Fokker Wolf 109s, like German aircraft, they had like small machine guns, but they also had cannons in the nose. 
So they would have like 20 millimeter cannons because they were really like anti-bomber aircraft. So it only took like one or two of those shells, but you can only carry like what, 150, whereas you could throw in like a couple hundred rounds of 50 cal and you could still just think you could still destroy ground targets, trains, ships as well, like the 50 caliber machine gun. It was just, yeah. Yep. (laughs) That was what I wanted to talk about. I I really enjoyed it. Yeah, you, you you know your stuff. You're screwed in, kid, I also, man. <laughs> that's my one superpower. We should also, in a future episode, talk about the Battle of the Beams, like using like their their uh, navigation technology, where they're using how the, the Germans would use their targeting. Oh, well, I can't remember. Well, we'll do it on another episode. Battle of the Beams is pretty cool. That's it for episode forty nine. Be sure to follow us on. All of our socials at a life and ruins podcast or a life and ruins pod. We now have episodes coming on YouTube. They're going on to the archaeology podcast network. We'll soon get them up to our channel. David, what else you got to say? Make sure you rate and review us. Send us emails at a life and ruins podcast, gmail.com. We did it. Yep. Seacrest out. Thanks for listening to a life and ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at A Life in Ruins Podcast. And you can also email us at A Life in Ruins Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to episode 49 of A Life Ruins Cop. <laughs> God God pass. Dude, yeah, I've been playing Call of Duty Modern Warfare all day. Sorry. Um, I almost said Cod Pass. Got it.